We interrupt this record to bring you a special bulletin. The reports of a flying saucer hovering over the city have been confirmed. The flying saucers are real. That was the Clatters recording. Too real. We switch you now to our on-the-spot reporter downtown. Come on, baby, let's go downtown. Take it away, John Cameron Cameron. Uh, this is John Cameron Cameron downtown. Uh, pardon me, madam, would you tell our audience what would you do if the saucer were to land? Duck, duck in the hell! Thank you. Another thing, gentlemen, there. What I'm gonna do is hard to tell. Uh, the gentleman with the guitar, what would you do, sir? Would you take a walk down the street? Thank you. We return you now. That was the Pelican's Outer Space recording Earth. I've just been handed a bulletin. The flying saucer has just landed. We switch you again downtown. Uh, here we are again. We have with us Professor Sir Cedric Fentingmold of the British Institute. And the professor is approaching the saucer to see if there's possibly any sign of life aboard. Well, I'm sure something. Are you there? I hear you now. That was Lapping Lewis's record, Knocking. This is John Cameron Cameron on the spot. And now I believe we're about to hear the words of the first spaceman ever to land on Earth. Oh, bam, 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 boom. And now here are the bowl scores. Four to three, six to two, and eight to one. The impact of seeing the first spaceman has this reporter reeling. Here I go. That was the Clatters again, with their big one, Uh-oh! This is John Cameron Cameron again downtown. The spaceman has returned to his ship and is taking off. We return you now to our studios. The flying saucer has gone. There is no threat of an invasion. However, the flying saucers are still around. That was an excerpt from Buchanan and Goodman's classic single, The Flying Saucer, Parts 1 and 2. And the title of this cast, episode 364, is in fact, How to Survive Being in Full-Time Ministry. And I want to um, present some thoughts on survival when you're a priest slash minister, slash pastor, slash full-time servant within the Christian church of whatever denomination or format you want to say, and um, ask you, how do you propose to survive? How is it going? Have you survived so far? Now, this is a Mockingbird cast, so it's not going to be prescriptive. Everybody, whenever you present a problem to people, they will almost always give you a series of uh, maxims or self-comforting thoughts, or in fact, uh, sometimes very well-intended um, good counsels that are designed to um, calm and uh, encourage you in your impasse or in your problem. And there are just uh, no end of 
possibilities of advice for ministers, for example, because that's what I'm talking about. I'm not saying how do you survive <clears throat> being a salesman of this or that, how do you survive being a professional, how do you survive being an OBGYN, how do you survive um, being uh, an accountant, how do you survive running an institution of any kind? Um, you don't, <laughs> but um, there's so many things I could offer. I was struck by um, a writer, a wonderful writer, I think her name is Jill Birchall, but she writes for The Spectator, an English um, magazine of opinion that's really <clears throat> quite penetrating. And uh, she was recently turning, I think, 62 or 63 or something like that. <clears throat> and she just had three kind of words for people who are now in their, we call it, you know, the the last third or the 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 last um, phase of uh, bodily life. And she had three principles, which were actually very, very good. And somehow they came across to me as being encouraging and rather than prescriptive. Um, and I hope this cast can. Her um, three apophagmata, her three words to the wise were um, find someone to love or love you. In other words, um, alter your alone state if you're a person alone um, as soon as you possibly can to get someone who is with you. Um, you need to have someone to share your life. And that's simply empirically the fact. You you don't want to die alone. I don't care who you are, what you think, who you hate, who you dislike, who you love, who you care for. But you absolutely, totally need um, someone to share your life uh, in the latter times that you have. And that person does too. Paula would say that that person is praying right now to find you. She always starts with the prayer of the person who you're going to find, who's actually praying to find you. I love that. Secondly, she says, find a place to volunteer. In other words, use what energy you have to really do something constructive and positive. And not only will you help people, which is the last part of it, really, but the main part of it is you'll find a community of people who often are lovely and care for you. It's like a church. Find a church, but find a find a uh, an avenue of giving, an avenue of loving outward. And thirdly, she says, find God, because to die without God is just terrible. It's just despair. And uh, it is. That's, again, that's empirical. That's not um, prescriptive. It's an observation. And I could say all sorts of things about um, surviving being in full-time ministry, whether you're 29 or whether you're 59 or whether you're in the middle of it or you're near the end of it, because it is, like many other um, lines of country, it is very, very demanding. And just when you think one element of the life of service uh, to present the gospel, to present what's changed your life with as much compassion and heart and enthusiasm and energy as you have, hopefully with somebody, who your wife or husband ideally, um, you um, will then find another. There's always a new problem. What did John Rogers used to say, who's now deceased and was my predecessor, as... Um, Dean President of Trinity Episcopal School for Ministry, he said the uh, he would come in on Monday morning and he would face the crisis du jour, not just du, de la semaine, but du jour. Every day had a new crisis because you're dealing with people and faculties. And I was told when I first started that work in uh, Ambridge, PA, someone very experienced said, uh, you know, the... Um, the average tenure of someone as the dean of a theological seminary is like nine months. I said, that can't be true. I'd just come from a, a ministry where I'd been 10 plus years. And um, 
He said, no, no, it's uh, because you get caught between your understanding and the faculties and the boards, and you're inevitably being, being pilloried, especially by the faculty, and they're, you're really only there to serve the students and the wider hopes of the Christian church. And uh, lo and behold, <laughs> that good man, Dan Ayleshire was his name, was so on target. So how do you survive being in full-time ministry? Well, I can tell you all sorts of things. But I want to say from my own experience, uh, and I've watched this now uh, with people I know who, have, who are in it for a long time. I see people who are <clears throat> Mary's and my son's age who are now in their 40s coming soon into their 50s who have, who have been doing it now for 20 years-ish. And uh, are, are, I watch them, but also because I trained uh, so many young clergy at Trinity and uh, had a lot of relations before with so many younger and uh, experienced clergy in the Episcopal Church. I learned a lot, so I observed a lot, and I am now constantly being asked uh, to help wonderfully sincere uh, and um, altruistic clergy, the real thing, try to survive between the denomination, between this secular and now really quite antagonistic world and the man and uh, in relationship to people in your very parish you can be so difficult and challenging because there's always a difficult person there's always one extremely almost terminally difficult opponent that's just the devil it happens it happens in every church every environment in the christian church and um you have it comes at you and just when you finally feel you know i'm watching a church and uh in near where I live, and just when a major problem seems to gradually be being solved that I've been observing now for a couple of years, and all of a sudden it's beginning to finally come together in a good way, another problem presents itself. I've been watching another problem, uh, and I say to myself, oh my gosh, we've just begun to have hope that we've, we're out of the woods in one area, and now... So, um, what can I say? Uh, and... Uh, I would say what I really have um, found, let me describe it. The clergy who seem to do the best, there are a few who just detach emotionally and are kind of, um, you might say, distanced from the traumas of resistance and mean-spiritedness and hypocrisy that are characteristic of human nature. And some people grow detached. We call it the kind of middle distance. I'm a on an intimate distance kind of clergyman. That is, I look people straight in the eyes. At least I seek to. One, I can't help it. I, when I'm talking to somebody, I'm I'm focused on the person uh, quite um, with everything I've got. I, I often wish I were more detached. Uh, some people are wildly detached, but, and, but many clergy, especially the older male clergy we know from years ago, became sort of semi-detached, middle distance emotionally. But uh, that's not ideal. How do you survive being in full-time ministry if you aren't detached but are normal and human and you want to survive and you, want to, don't, you don't want to be, have some terrible thing happen to you or get involved in some thing that everything in you doesn't want to get involved in, but somehow you're weak and you're vulnerable and you're tired and you're a little bit angry and something presents itself to you and you make a terrible decision that can imperil everything and everybody. And, uh, or you just become so despondent and depressed you kind of lose interest and eventually the church has to let you go because you're just not committed any longer. You're just too darn vitiated by the life of the minister. Well, what am I saying here that will help you? Well, in my own experience, I discovered, but it predated being in the ministry. I just love, 
um, monster movies. I just really, I, as a little kid, I just love universal horror films in the 30s and 40s. And then uh, this, I graduated in the early 60s to Hollywood science fiction movies, not serious ones. You know, I like The Day the Earth Stood Still, of course, um, and I certainly like Steven Spielberg's wonderful movies, uh, especially Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and that's a great escape. But um, remember, it has Pinocchio at the end, the theme from Pinocchio. Is that it? Yes, When You Wish Upon a Star. So we're talking about a flight from this world's tension and stresses. But um, what got to me in the long run was the um, both the... Wonderful escapist fantasy of the beautiful chiaroscuro camera work of Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, a very much a B movie in any sense, a B work of popular art of the Wolfman with Lon Chaney from 1941, or The Invisible Ray with Boris Karloff from 1935, and Bela Lugosi. That's the one where Bela Lugosi plays a scientist in, um, in the, doing some research in darkest Africa at a sort of research station in the middle of the jungle, and an English visiting sort of rather aristocratic aristocratic sponsor says, well, doctor, tell us, uh, what uh, what have you discovered today in your work? And uh, Bela Lugosi says, oh, only that uh, the sun is the mother of us all. I mean, can, isn't that the most wonderful thing? Only that, on, only that the sun is the mother of us all. I mean, this is just heaven. And, um, then I just adore the 50s, the Colossus of New York and the alligator people and the conquest of space and the crawling eye. Those are just the first ones I saw when I was nine. But they cast a spell, but I'm getting at something. My number one uh, work in life, in addition to my love of those whom I love, the family in particular, Mary and the children that we've had together and our grandchildren and others as well. Um, primary, the like all people, the closest ones. The numero uno calling I've had has been, in fact, to preach the gospel as best I could in a traditional church situation. Um, that's number one. It's the, the Colossus of New York is not number one. However, to live uh, without absolutely ODing on all the different low anthropology dimensions of institutions and people. It has served me enormously to have music and movies and television that I love. It was something when we had small children, Mary and I would just <clears throat> knock ourselves out between our work, and she then had a wonderful career. But in very early times, little tiny children in New York City and Westchester and um, beyond, um, We'd knock ourselves out, and then we'd spend time with the children, get them all squared away, and then Mary was so wiped out, she would often go to bed around 9.30 or 10. I would want to, but I was sort of pumped, and I couldn't. So what I would end up doing, I would listen to music that I loved and sort of read. I, we didn't have VCRs or much yet, or um, DVDs or phones, obviously, but I would read about, think about, read about, read books about um, Hammer Horror films or... Um, Jack Arnold's sci-fi movies like The Incredible Shrinking Man and listen to Dickie Betts. I remember when David was born, David was born sick. He had to stay in the hospital. He'd contracted an, an infection uh, through uh, a playmate of one of our other children's, and Mary had contracted an infection, which uh, just to 
which had gone straight to this tiny little child within her. And David was born with an infection, and he had to stay in the hospital in St. Vincent's in uh, New York City for about eight or nine days until he was fully recovered. And we were just here. We had already a little child and the work of course in the church but we dropped everything for that and we didn't have parents yet to come and help us although they did Mary's family came very soon but initially and I just remembered uh, we would be at the hospital uh, I'd visit Mary I'd visit the David a tiny tiny infant in the ICU pediatric and then we'd um I'd come home at around 11, but I couldn't go to sleep. So I listened to Dickie Betts. I remember listening to Dickie Betts and the Allman Brothers. Um, oh, my gosh. Uh, the Pegasus. By, you know, uh, I would look for lyrical Dickie Betts um, P- guitar solos and read till about 2 o'clock in the morning. But it saved me. On the one hand, I'd be really tired because I'd have to get up at 6 the following morning. And then the show is, you know, the curtain goes up on the next day for months and months and months and months, although David came home quite soon, uh, fortunately, and completely recovered. But, oh, what saved what saved uh, the speaker? Dickie Betts. <laughs> Can you, there's a line in uh, an early Miami Vice episodes where Ricardo Tubbs visits uh, the John Johnson character and looks through his rather flaky, and the, you're supposed to think very, quote, white um, record collection, and... Uh, Ricardo Tubbs, who's very cool from up in New York, uh, looks through it in the Miami Vice episode. He says, oh, he looks and sees something really silly, like Peter Frampton or something like that. And he said, uh, Dickie Betts? You know, I mean, but anyway, that's what saved me. What I'm really saying to you, something saved me, which was movies and TV. And that's still true. I'm still, um, that's why I wanted to play you. And the funny thing about when you have an interest like that um, is that it, it's humor. I mean, if you really think about The Crawling Eye from 1958-59, the original name of that movie is The Trollenberg Terror, but they weren't going to release it in in America with the title, what the, The Trollenberg Terror? Um, they released it as The Crawling Eye. It is so cool. A Crawling Eye. Okay, but not great special effects. The Crawling Eye. Literally The Crawling Eye, who are aliens who've landed on the top of an alp in Switzerland with fog all around them. And that is both cool, and it's also very funny. I mean, there's a level of which, if you love this kind of stuff, it's extremely funny. And um, you have to have something that kind of puts it all in perspective with humor. Now, I know a wonderful rector of a major parish in North Carolina, and he is a man I admire very much. And he's absolutely passionate about um, fly fishing. I mean, he's a serious fly fisherman. He goes out west whenever he can, whenever he's free and able. He goes out west and does fly fishing. And his children, his sons, have become fly fishermen. It's a little like a river runs through it. But this man is a wonderful minister of the gospel, which is just clear. He did a brilliant job, by the way, during COVID. And, um, but his real interest is, uh, is uh, his real interest is his ministry. But he... His love of fly fishing, which is like number two in his life after his family, obviously, is, is keeps him, I, I feel certain that it keeps him going. Uh, and then there's a, a wonderful rector up in the Northeast, where we've been living for the last few years off and on, who just adores tennis. I mean, tennis really is something he just loves to do. And it keeps him sane. Obviously, it keeps his body going and it keeps him healthy uh, and it keeps him interested But it, 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 in all sorts of ways. But I see it or I see John Zoll, who's a disco 
a DJ, and he's the busiest man in the world. And uh, it's a DJ, or I see David Zoll, who was that little boy with his father listening to Dickie Betts and reading uh, books about Jack Arnold while he was... Um, while I was, while David was in the hospital before I went back every morning, breast pumps and things like that. We, this is just the way it is. I mean, this is not gross. It's the way it was and the way it is, and it's turned out beautifully. But David's office, I mean, his office is that's the sheer existence of comic books and garbage pail kids as connected to the Christian view of life makes Mockingbird something truly unique in the world. It's truly unique in the world. So I wanted just to say that I talked about fly fishing, I talked about hobbies and interests. Um, I see it in Simeon Zoll and other things that he adores. I've been unpacking his books recently from his childhood, his science fiction and fantasy. A massive Orson Scott card world of many, many, many interests. And this is what you, um, if you're going to succeed, the empirical fact is, in ministry that is, succeed, you uh, will inevitably find that you have something else that you adore and love, and that sort of keeps you going. It cannot take over, because it's really number two. Let me underline that. You're not in the ministry in order to, to, to watch movies. You watch movies to be in the ministry, although you just like movies. You know, I just like to watch old Outer Limits episodes. Um, there's all sorts of retrospective psychiatric, psychodynamic elements, but it's, it's whatever it is, whatever it is. It could be Victor Hugo novels. It could be um, studying uh, Spanish. I mean, it could be a million things, but it's got to be there for there to be success or you'll stress yourself to death. And that's, again, empirical. And just, I, you just look at your own life and you'll see that this is true. That's all I wanted to say. I love Ethan Magnus, by the way, also, because he does this beautifully. Well, I'm going to conclude with a really important and totally serious take on what I've been trying to say. Love you. From the land of endless night come I, an alien from afar, spewing forth upon you a pleasant sphere, so much like you, and yet so unalike. Am I the you before, the you you were when your world was new, or am I the you that you will be tomorrow? Through me you see your future or your past, I know not which. For I come from that spark of light so far in space, your mind the distance could not comprehend. 